0: This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined.
1: Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. You can listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts, Uh, and we would love to hear from you. So. Please do tell us what you think. Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, money reimagined. I have to tell you, it's just me today. Sorry about that. Sheila is out this week. She'll be back shortly. Uh, And we've decided to do something a little different. Uh, We're bringing you an interview that I did with Mike Novogratz, the CEO and founder of Galaxy Digital. And I did this on the sidelines of the Uncharted Summit, which was a unique, I would say, investor and ideas event at entrepreneur Michael Loeb's expansive house in the Hamptons. This was uh, the Hamptons on Long Island just last week. Uh, Later, uh, in coming episodes, we'll also bring you a couple more interviews that I did with other folks, including the legendary Wall Street financier Sally Krawczyk, and with an outside-the-box thinking entrepreneur called Nick Mayer, who is doing some fascinating things with Bitcoin and carbon capture. All right, so let's get to it with Mike. He was one of three panelists for a session that I moderated during the Uncharted Summit. And I started out by asking him about a high level concept that he talked about on that panel. And that is the idea of crypto and NFTs as the foundation of a new age of digital property rights. Later, I asked him about Galaxy's partnership with Invesco. The two companies recently resought approval from the Securities and Exchange Commission for a Bitcoin ETF. And I wanted to know what that, along with BlackRock's and other big players' similar initiatives, says about the potential institutionalizing of crypto. But for now, let's hear Mike talk about digital property rights. Hey, Mike, no regrets. Thanks for being here. A pleasure. Later on, we're going to do a bit of a chat here at the Uncharted Summit, Michael Loeb's house out in Southampton. Looks like it'll be a fun event. A lot happening in the crypto space that this audience here may or may not have any clue about it, but it's going to be interesting to see if we can Get them to to grapple with it. What I want to do with you today, though, is just to delve into a big idea that I suspect we'll be talking on stage later on about. There's a lot we could uh, delve into that's happening in the regulation world, everything else, but I think let's just step back here and, you know, Web3 for what it is, the idea of NFTs, the concept of digital scarcity. I know you've got some thoughts on this idea of a sort of a new ownership economy in the digital age. I myself am particularly interested in the idea that we could create property rights in the digital realm that really hasn't existed until now, and that out of that could come something big. But why don't you just step in and give us your thoughts on what that's all about?
2: Sure. Well, thanks for having me. It is a beautiful setting. Listen, when I started trying to explain Bitcoin to people, you know, my first attempts were you know, trying to explain the double spend problem and the Byzantine generals problem. And as a non computer science guy talking to non computer science guys, people's eyes glazed over. And I finally got it down to a pretty simple concept. I was like, guys, up until now, you could control copy paste everything on the internet. And Satoshi solving these computer science problems allowed us to have uniqueness. So there's 21 million Bitcoin. We know that Bitcoin is that Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin was the first private property on the internet. And until then, it was a internet without private property. And you think about how important private property is to the world, right? John Locke in 1689 said, there's no capitalism without private property. George Washington in 1774 said, there's no freedom without private property. You Look at development economics and you read anything by Hernando de Soto, countries start accelerating growth when they give property rights. And so if I just take that and I extrapolate how important property is, and I look at the internet pre-Satoshi, already pre-now, right? It was feudal. Facebook, Google, these giant fiefdoms where your data was your rent in lots of ways. And you created these citadels of power where the bulk of wealth went to the few. And web three, this idea that we now can have private property in the simplest terms, things like, you know, an artist can create digitally and know it's his. I remember talking about NFTs literally in 2014, before there were NFTs, in theory, and concept. And so when they finally showed up, I was like, dude, so cool. But that's the basic idea. And we're so early. You know, we had a bubble in NFTs because people got excited about everything in 2021 it doesn't mean they're not a wildly important technology.
1: So glad you raised this so It's a bit of a, an obsession of mine. In fact, I no no, no, no. for a while and introduced him to blockchain, brought him off to the blockchain summit in Necker Island some time ago. So he's explored this space, but he's never been quite been able to translate, I think, as well as it could be this idea into that context. But the reason why you know, I've been interested is I think that, to your point, you've, we've had these moments through history where property rights have been sort of extended to a, a class of person who was previously excluded from it. There's Various moments, the invention of the limited stock company in, in the Netherlands, and Deng Xiaoping post Mao gave every you know, homeowner the right to own their home. And you see these sudden explosions of wealth happening. The digital economy is a place in which we haven't had those rights. And so it's analogous to these moments. What do you see happening then? I mean, is there a similar moment where like, wealth gets created uh, massively in this, or is it sort of more of a shifting of the deck chairs and it's just sort of more of a democratization of the process?
2: I hope it's the first. We're early, and we're early on in this in this process. And so, what I'm sure of is that you know, a world of interconnected blockchains gives us the capacity for the digital world to start shifting and changing. I, I do this experiment often. I ask people in the room that are over sixty how much screen time. They don't even know how to find their screen time, so I take them through on their Apple phone screen time and how much they have and then 60 to 40 and then 40 to 20 and then 20 and under and there's a complete explosive uh, correlation between youth and mm. screen time mm. right we are moving more and more spending more and more of our lives in in, in some form of the digital world someone told me that we're going to call this new generation generation glass because they're tapping on glass from the time they're born i'm not saying it's healthy but i'm observing it uh, in you know, the amount of TikTok that goes on. And and so as we spend more and more time in that world or in in an augmented reality world, it just goes to, feels intuitive that having unique digital property is going to feel more important. That's collectibles. Your healthcare records, right? Your healthcare records, first of all, they're in the paper world, they're miserable. We're starting to get some electronic healthcare records, but they're not yours and you can envision a world where they're yours, and you can sell your data if you want to sell your data, and you can give those records to any doctor without having to call up NYU and, uh, or whatever your hospital is. You can go down any rabbit hole. Now, where we're at in small picture of crypto right now, because I'm good, I'm good at waxing poetic about the possibilities, and I realized that really, it made me wealthy in the last two cycles. It made me feel important, uh, but in this cycle, I think it's going to be far more important to have examples of that works. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to get myself granular. As a macro guy, it's, it's, it's not a comfortable place. Mm. <laughs> I, I would say I don't love the plumbing <laughs> uh, uh, or the back of the TV. I just like the TV. Mm. But I do think it's important that we start seeing actual examples. Like, it's crazy to me that every ticket you buy isn't a blockchain ticket. Go to Taylor Swift and I'm paying... X thousand dollars to try to get a ticket in the shitty seats. And who's getting that vig is the bot that was able to buy them first. Uh, that all is solvable with blockchain tickets. And there's so much more that can happen. with One of the coolest, I've had a lot of cool experiences being a crypto junkie. One day in 2016, I got a call and I thought it was a prank. And it was from Adam Clayton of U2, who wanted to talk about blockchain tickets in 2016. And I uh, went out to the Meadowlands. And they gave me VIP seats. And before the concert, we sat down. He listened to two of my podcasts, which was completely flattering. And he was all over this idea. And he actually wanted to be able to throw tickets, you know, throw virtual tickets (laughs) from the stage to the people in the in the the high rows, and have their them catch them on their phone and be able to come down and sit in the front row. My
1: second, yeah,
2: it's all doable. Uh, It just hasn't been done yet. And so what I'm hoping is people far smarter than me and projects we invest in actually start getting some of this shit done. Candy, we have a commemorative tickets, right? That, that aren't the actual ticket yet, but they're souvenir tickets. And you think about when you were a kid, every concert you went to, you kept your ticket and you put it in a, in a uh, shoebox or you put a, you know, a tack on the, on the wall in your basement and you had all your tickets lined up. People are going to have virtual scrapbooks, digital scrapbooks. And, and so I do think from simple things like that to big ideas like healthcare records, All possible has to start happening.
0: Are you looking to fast track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero-knowledge applications, on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY blockchain's APIs and zero-knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com.
1: All right, just round this up with one more question, then you talk about actual use cases. And clearly there's a lot of focus on this right now because it felt as if the last cycle, as you were alluding to, was really all about the number go up. You know, the, the use case was almost speculation and trading. How do we get there and, and how important is the right sort of policy framework for doing this. It feels as if right now in the United States, there is a wider sort of narrative at that sort of higher level that crypto is bad, that it is, it is the crypto bro. And yet these use cases that you're alluding to have been around for quite some time and there are people actually building these things. So how do we sort of bring them into reality? What is the process by which essentially we get this adoption?
2: That's a great question. Um, listen, the industry did a horrific job of self-regulating. I remember getting on stage at the second ethereal conference and telling this story about Alex Marcos and how I thought he was a philanthropist because he was donating Bitcoin to MIT students. He was, he was investing in infrastructure. He was a core developer. And I was like, you're like a freaking philanthropist for Bitcoin. He was like, I own a lot of Bitcoin. I want this system to be really robust and adopted. So my Bitcoin goes up and I was like, what a beautiful idea. You do well by doing good. And that was my, like, that was my speech. And the reality is, we had a lot of people that did well by doing shitty. Uh, if it was Sam Bankman-Fried who spent his time in jail, or uh, the Three Arrows Bros, Doquan, mm-hmm. Celsius, you can name a ton of people that took the shortcut. And listen, none of us are free of some guilt. Of you know your your investors, you're investing in projects that are gaining momentum, and one of the big differentiations is. Is it important to be decentralized or not, right? A lot of these projects were never decentralized, right? One of the things that Bitcoin and Ethereum really have going for it, they are decentralized systems. Um, But so now we need some regulatory framework, both in the US and abroad. Uh, The politics are right now. They will change. This industry is going nowhere. It is making it really difficult to suck in capital, right? All of these projects need venture capital. And to build the future, it costs money uh, and a lot of money. And so when we have a bubble, even though there's a lot of wasted money, a lot of good stuff gets built. When you have a drought, only the good stuff survives. Some of the good stuff doesn't survive. And so we need a structure that's at least good enough. So you're not seen to be, you know, one of the guys who was a friend of mine who runs a, a, a very well-regulated exchange, not regulated, regulated offshore exchange, but runs it very decently. In his old job, he was a very senior guy in trade He said he went to talk to a bank in Singapore, and he felt like he was a part of a drug cartel. (laughs) You know, he was like, wait a minute, I used to run in a major company. We've got to get that temperature turned way down. And it's turned down in the UK. They're being, you know, it's turned down in Hong Kong, believe it or not. It's not in the US yet. And I think time will heal a little bit, but we're going to have to have a changing of the guard at the SEC uh, or a changing of opinion at the SEC. uh, And that's a couple of years away.
1: On that note, I to have to ask one more, and that is like, you know, just a Galaxy, along with Invesco, along with, you know, not along with, but alongside BlackRock and Wisdom Tree, uh, all in this one past week uh, resubmitting or submitting new applications for ETFs. The message seems to be that, that Washington, particularly the SEC, is very down on both Bitcoin ETFs and, and crypto generally. What is it that you guys know that the rest of us don't?
2: <laughs> I wish I knew a lot. Listen, I think if you just take Gary Gensler at face value, he is going to argue right or wrong. I was the sheriff of Nottingham Forest, and I cleaned up all the frauds and the messes and the uncertainty and unclarity to protect the consumer. But I was not anti-crypto. Look, I'm engaging with the good players like BlackRock. So I think that's going to be the framework that he goes to bed at night with. uh, So he sleeps because Gary is a public servant. You know, and you might think he's a good or bad public servant, but, he, you know, he, he, he is a guy that works really hard, one of the hardest-working guys I know, who is very smart uh, and has to have a framework that he can go to sleep with. And t- so to me, this is just my own dime store psycholo- psychiatry. That's what I think is happening. It, it, it could be way off. Um, what is important is the first round people you know, submitted their their ETF application. This one is coming with the, the form, I can't remember the name, 124 or whatever, which talks about who's going to be the surveillance part of that. And so that's a step further along. The third piece of that is, is there a regulated security that these things can trade on? Mm-hmm. You know, NASDAQ is in the process. You just saw Citadel and a p- bunch of partners. And so those pieces are falling in line, which tells me we're not far away, is that four months? Is it eight months? You know, I'm three bit at eight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's a game changer. Mike, there's so many more questions I uh, was was keen to ask you of, uh, but we'll have to save those for the stage later on. Thank you, Mike Novogratz for spending some time with us today. All the best. Okay. That's all we have time for for now. Thank you so much for joining us. We do, as I mentioned at the outset, love to hear from you guys. Uh, So please uh, feel free to let us know what you think. You can email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Money Reimagined. Do make sure you subscribe to us. You can listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Sheila will be back and the two of us will bring to you an interview that we had with a former colleague of mine, Brady Dale, who is now at Axios. Uh, he writes the Axios crypto newsletter. but just as importantly, he is the author of the recently released book, SBF, How the FTX Bankruptcy Unwound Crypto's Very Bad Good Guy. It's a great dive into the mindset of somebody that has captured so much attention from us in the past few months. All righty. Well, thanks for joining us. Let's see you again next week. Bye for now.
0: You've been listening to Money Reimagined. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Swartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. Download wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or you can reach out to me directly at Michelle with one L at coindesk.com. Thanks for listening.